recognizing the problem is, uh, of course, a really major part uh, of overcoming it. Uh, and we know that once we recognize the problem, the most powerful tool that we have to uh, approach it with is just simple, non-judgmental, mindful awareness, just investigation. And in something that has so much uh, feeling content, so much emotional content, so much sensitivity, always start with the physical, always start with the body. How do I feel in my body? Where is the tension? Where is the tightness? Where is the pain? Where is the resistance? Where is the stiffness? Just start with the body and then as you get more and more clear on uh, the manifestation of this in your body, then you can move to uh, just letting your mind rest in an investigation of the, the feeling component and the, uh, and the mental state and just a object, as objectively as you can. And when, when I say objective, it's, it's keeping that place of understanding that every experience that you're having, everything that arises in your mind, every reaction in your body, every feeling, everything that arises, this is all, this is all just a, a result of, of prior conditioning. This is, you're watching something emerge out of causes and conditions. And you don't need to judge it, most especially you don't need to judge yourself because there's no self that's making this. The causes and conditions exist. The, uh, and, and by that, the causes in the past exist, the conditions in the present make it possible for uh, it to manifest. And that's the combination of causes and conditions that's bringing it forth. To, to see it, just to see it and understand it. And then uh, with, uh, with a little bit of uh, luck and a lot of perseverance, you get to the point where you can go ahead and proceed in the, in the face of whatever emotional resistance there is. Even if you don't, if you've said you're going to meditate in this time and you meditate on in an effective way on, on your resistance uh, probably be uh, more beneficial in the long, long run than sitting and watching your breath for an hour anyway. There's ultimately everything that you need to learn and discover is always there. It's always present every moment. And there's no there's no bad meditation. If you've set aside time to practice meditation, practice in whatever way you can. If you have resistance to sitting down, then stand up and examine your resistance. And when you get tired of standing up doing this examination, sit down and examine your resistance. Just make that your meditation until until you found a way through it, until or it's resolved itself.
Moving into just a little bit away from what you directly asked about. One thing about organized spiritual groups, meditation groups and dharma groups and things like this, is there are a lot of wounded, troubled people in any dharma group. Uh, I'm not sure, considering how many wounded people there are in the world, period, I'm not sure I can say exactly that the proportion is greater, but it feels to me like, like in any, you know, if you if you go to a Dharma gathering and there's 50 people there, that there's going to be a greater percentage of people that uh, have have more suffering and more difficulty in their life than you would if you went to, you know, I don't know, a, a, a sports event picked out 50 people at random. (laughs) And that's as it should be, because the Dharma and spiritual practice, uh, you have to have a recognition that uh, there's a problem with things the way they are. You know, you have to have a recognition that, that you personally have some motivation to find and discover uh, something beyond this before it's even going to appeal to you. And so that's that's as it should be. Now, when you get a group of people together who are on the one hand sensitive, they have been wounded, they are struggling, they've had a lot of pain in their life, and probably because they're survivors they mustered a lot, a lot of strength and courage of different kinds to deal with their difficulties. But you put them all together and you begin discussing a a path of liberation and practice and so forth. All these wounded egos are looking for a way to, to be fed. The other thing that you tend to find in Dharma groups uh, is a lot of overinflated egos. Because this is what happens when wounded people find an opportunity to compensate through, you know, uh, through that kind of, of, of uh, ego aggrandizement. And so there's a lot of spiritual ego in Dharma groups. So we can all be enormously helpful to each other, and we can all overcome that. But we've all got to recognize that there's 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 a risk that we're going to be subject to that, you know. So um, when when I hear that somebody's self-esteem has uh, suffered as a result of things that other people have said or the way they've been treated uh, in a Dharma group, you know, it's like. Yes, I recognize that right away. That keeps happening a lot. There are people whose sense of self-esteem isn't that good to start with. And there's other people who, in order to compensate, have gone in the other direction. And you put the two of them together, and the one damages the other, you know. And it's, it's very unfortunate, but it's very understandable and hopefully very forgivable and totally can be overcome. But... You know, 
it is, it's part of the reality of the world at large, and it happens in Dharma groups too. So be a light unto yourself. And accept the support of a Sangha, but don't allow yourself to enter into dependence upon a Sangha. You're born alone, you die alone, and if you walk, if you travel the path to enlightenment, that's going to be alone too. That has, that's the only way that you can do it. And so take the support and the directions and the guidance, but don't allow yourself to become emotionally or otherwise dependent upon anyone else. Uh, and that's the thing to be very careful of if you enter into any kind of a practice where guru yoga is a part of it, is to, uh, as, uh, as Westerners, we don't necessarily know how to practice guru yoga. And so uh, the mistake that we make, that we can make, is to develop dependence. In, you know, in a guru yoga situation, you're going to take this poor person who's put themselves in the position of a teacher, and you're going to create in your mind something that they would never recognize, even in their most grandiose <laughs> dreams. Right? But you have to do that without ever forgetting that you're the one that created that image of the guru. right? And that other poor being doesn't stand a hope in all eternity of measuring up even this much of what you're creating. So... Welcome, everyone. We've got a nice big group here, and, and uh, I managed to talk a little bit longer than I should have for starting our session, which is good, because none of you have to feel embarrassed about walking in in the middle of a sit. <laughs> but please make yourselves comfortable, and we will begin our sit in. I just did a pause, but then I came back and it was turned off. I mean, it was was stopped, and so I started recording. Okay, so there's my... And that now goes to 12. Unfortunately, my place to stay would be... So, tonight we're going to uh, basically continue the discussion that we were having last week, and uh, we, we have now arrived at uh, the what's called dependent origination or dependent 
co-origination, or Viticha Sanupada in the Pali. And this, uh, this thing that's called dependent origination, uh, it's a it's a formula. You know, one of the things, uh, wonderful things that the Buddha did was he gave us some fantastic tools that we can use. And uh, this uh, uh, description of the causal links called dependent origination is an incredibly useful tool. But it's a formula, basically. And you know how it is with formulas. Uh, Unless you uh, understand them, they don't have much meaning. You have to... uh, It takes a little bit of explanation to understand the formula. And then the real value of it is, uh, with any formula, is when you use it. When you uh, apply the formula to help you understand. But it is... Uh, it's also tremendously value in a descriptive sense. And by the way, in uh, his description of his own enlightenment, uh, he says that uh, it was on, on the night of his enlightenment that he understood uh, this process of dependent origination and he describes going through it forward and backwards and uh, really seeing how it worked. So, how, how many of you are already familiar with the 12 links of dependent origination? A few of you, yes. Um, so, let me go over, just be, uh, familiarize you with the components uh, because uh, it can it can be a bit confusing uh, uh, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, there, in in the, the most complete version of it, uh, there are twelve links. And the reason I say the most complete version of it is when we go to the sutras, the the uh, teachings of the Buddha himself. He described parts of this sequence uh, in, in independence of other parts at different times. So you don't always find all 12 links together. As a matter of fact, I'm not... Yes, uh, yes you do find all 12 in, in the, uh, the sutra that describes his enlightenment. But uh, I'll explain to you the structure of it. Okay, the first two links are describing the past. And the last two links are describing the future. The eight in the middle are describing what happens in the present. Okay? And that's really where all the action is, so to speak, in in, in these eight that are in the middle. Uh, And this can be understood uh, on different sort of scales or, or uh, yeah, scales I guess is the right word. It can be taken as describing the relationship between past lifetimes, 
the first two links as describing what's happened in past lifetimes. Uh, the middle eight links describing what happens in this lifetime, and the last two links predicting the outcome of the actions in this lifetime, which is future uh, rebirth and, and continuation of the the uh, wheel of samsara, the wheel of uh, death and rebirth. So that's one level you can understand it as past life, present life, future life. You can understand it uh, also, you can interpret it as a yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can interpret it as being applied to specific experiences. The first two links is describing previous experiences similar to the one you're having now. The middle eight links describing what happens in, your, in, in the experience you're having right now. And then the last two links referring to the future consequences. Or it can also be understood as a description of what's happening in our mind with every moment of consciousness as it arises and passes away. And so those eight links in the middle are describing the events that occur uh, in, in each moment of consciousness which perpetuates our our view of the world as we normally perceive it. So let me tell you what the links are. The first two, the first link is ignorance. And with ignorance as a cause, there arise karmic formations. Um, Now, when we say karmic formations. Karma literally means action, but the Buddha very clearly said, when I say karma, I mean intention. Because all action arises out of intention. And it's not the action itself that is so important as the intentions behind it. And so, out of ignorance, there arise actions, uh, and the important thing about those actions is the intentions behind them. And these karmic, these uh, karmic actions result in, uh, the word is sankaras, but it's, um, they're referring to, it means something like formations. It refers to something that is present in the mind stream which will manifest in the future. So anything, any, any intention that arises, uh, it will make an imprint on your psyche, a kind of sankara or formation. And that will, that will manifest uh, in, in the future. So the first two links out of ignorance arise karmic formations. <clears throat> Maybe I'll just briefly say a little bit about what makes them karmic. That's because the uh, intentions are rooted in ignorance. You see, the uh, intentions can be rooted in ignorance, aversion, desire, uh, 
generosity, uh, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the possible roots. And the first three are unwholesome roots. Ignorance is an unwholesome root of intention because the kind of imprint that it makes on the mind will lead to future unwholesome experiences. Uh, The same thing is true of aversion and desire. These are unwholesome roots. Uh, Generosity, which is the opposite of uh, desire, produces, uh, uh, it's a wholesome root, and it will produce a, a kind of imprint that when it manifests in the future, produces a more positive kind of result. Likewise, uh, if we look at uh, aversion as an unwholesome root, uh, the uh, loving kindness and compassion are the uh, opposite kind of root. And then, of course, there's wisdom. Now, aversion and uh, desire never occur except in company of ignorance. So ignorance is always the, the is always present in these unwholesome roots. So with ignorance as a cause, there are karmic actions, and as a result of these uh, karmic formations. So then, as a result of these karmic formations, the, the, the next link arises, which is the first link in that middle eight. Now we've gone from the past to the present. And that first link is, is consciousness. I'm going to come back to the middle eight. Let's jump ahead to the last two. The last two links are birth, with birth as a cause. There is old age and death. Or we can look at this in, you know, if, if you're thinking of this in terms of a description of what happen, what relates one, what connects one lifetime to another, then that's obvious, the implications here, because of what happens in, in the past, we live the kind of life we do in the present, and because of the life we live in the present, then this will give rise to a future birth, uh, and that future birth, a lifetime that is conditioned by the path, a past and which will eventually result in old age and death. If we're talking about yesterday, today, and tomorrow, what we did yesterday affects what happens today and what we do today affects the kind of person that we wake up as tomorrow morning. If we look at how this applies to particular kinds of experiences, Our past experiences have conditioned us. Uh, uh, Take, for example, desire. If we have have previously conditioned ourselves to be lustful, then if we find ourselves, if our present experience is one which provides the the appropriate uh, circumstances for that lust that we've conditioned our mind to to arise, we will experience lust in the present and we will act out of that. And because of, uh, of doing that, we've reinforced the tendency that's already there. So in the future, once again, that same lust will be reborn 
and that experience, that some future experience conditioned by that will arise and it will age, decay, and pass away. In terms of moments of consciousness, past moments of consciousness condition the present moments of consciousness and the reaction of the mind in the present moment of consciousness uh, determines the nature of future moments of consciousness that arise. So, but always in the past, uh, it's been with ignorance as a cause are the karmic formations that lead to the uh, dissatisfactory or dukkha uh, qualified experience that we have uh, as non-awakened beings. That's what we talked about last week, right? Mm -hmm. The Four Truths, we talked about the nature of human existence is permeated by unsatisfactoriness. Craving was the cause. Craving is wanting things to be different than they are. Craving is our resistance to suchness, our resistance to what is. And it causes our, our suffering. And uh, it's the uh, cessation of craving that uh, leads to the cessation of suffering. And the Eightfold Path is the way to accomplish that. So, going back to dependent origination, the present that we're talking about in the middle eight links is this human existence which is qualified by and permeated by dukkha, dissatisfactoriness. And it is within this present existence that we create the, the causes for a continuation of it, the, the, the wheel of samsara, that we uh, create the conditions for the continued uh, existence that's of the nature of dukkha. Okay? So let's look at these, these eight links that are in the middle then. The first five of them are pretty simple, straightforward, obvious. What's most important about them is is that they, they have to do with a correct way of viewing the nature of our experience and, and really of uh, what it means to be a, a human being, what it means to be a conscious individual. So let's look at those. The first one, consciousness. With consciousness, I'll just go through the eight of them and then we'll go back and explain them. With consciousness as a cause, there arises body and mind mind and body. Now there's an interesting thing about these first two because when the Buddha described them before he went to the third link he said and with mind and body as a cause there is consciousness. He says I noticed how this consciousness turns back on itself and uh, so I'll explain this in more detail but with consciousness as a cause there's mind and body, and then sort of in parenthesis, with mind and body as a cause, there's consciousness, and we'll explain that. But continuing with the links in sequence, the third link, okay, with with the second link as a cause, with mind and body as uh, as a cause, or let me put it this way, with a cause really isn't the clearest way to just go through these. Okay, where there is consciousness, there is mind and body. Maybe it'll 
be a little easier to follow there. Hmm. With mind and body, where mind and body are present, the third link, there will be the sense bases, the six sense bases. Okay, the sixth sense, of course, being the mind sense by which mental objects are known. And when we say this, uh, sense bases, this is a crude English translation of uh, a, a Pali word, ayatana, which means sense organ and the object appropriate to that organ. So it means not just the organ, but you know, it means the eye, but it also means uh, uh, the uh, visual stimulus, the, the light that uh, enters the eye. Or it also it means not just the sense of taste, but it means those objects which are tasted, are, are, are tasteable. Okay. So, where there is consciousness, there's mind and body. Where there's mind and body, there are the six sense bases. Where there's the six sense bases, there will be contact. Contact meaning that's where the mind, by means of the sense organ, takes the object as object of consciousness. So, that's the coming together of, con- of, of the consciousness and the object of consciousness through the medium of the sense organ. Okay? So, back again from the beginning. Where there's consciousness, there's mind and body. Where there's mind and body, there's the sense bases. Where there's sense bases, there will inevitably be contact, consciousness of an object. Where there is contact, there will be feeling. Feeling referring specifically to pleasure, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So these five are a description of what's always happening all the time to everybody, including to a Buddha. A Buddha and a completely awakened being, in so much as that awakened being is conscious in this world, there will be mind and body, there will be the sense bases, there will be contact, and there will be pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither. That's that's the inescapable part. The next link, though, is none other than tana, craving. The craving that is the... the uh, the second noble truth, the craving that is the cause of suffering. Okay, so with feel where there is feeling, there will arise craving. Then where there is craving, there will arise grasping. And grasping takes some explanation too. Grasping is what the mind does. Grasping sometimes is translated as clinging. The Pali word is upadana, and there is not in there's no uh, the, uh, English word that even comes close to explaining to to translating upadana. It takes a whole paragraph. What it refers to. This is what the mind does when it takes this perception of an object that has produced either pleasantness or unpleasantness and it makes it into an existent from its own side. It, the mind makes it in, makes this into a real thing and it's where at the same time the mind makes the self into a real thing. So grasping is a process where in the mind there now comes to exist a self experiencing pleasure or pain attributed to this object. This is what grasping is. This grasping is a major event. It's this. Now, this results in becoming. 
Where there is grasping, there is uh, becoming. What becoming means is now there is an I that wants this. And and from that comes an action. And as a result of that action, which of course had an intention behind it, which was rooted in craving, which in turn was rooted in ignorance. So now, through this act of becoming, I perform some action. And that is what leads to to the future arising, decay and passing away, or birth, aging, and death. Hmm. Okay? Yes? Yeah, I just had a question that I don't know exactly. It seems like there's a different sense of, like, when he said this stuff, you think, if you think about, like, totally as a psychological process, it makes, mm-hmm. it all fits to my mind. But then it seems like there's these differences in psychological and physical that they it might just come from a totally different worldview because he has, like, a psychological process producing a physical body, which then okay. produces a psychological process. Did you mean that, like, literally, or was that more like a metaphor? That's what I was curious No, and that's, that's one of the things that... Uh, has that often confuses people because uh, yes, it does sound as though uh, you have uh, a psychological process resulting in a physical body, and then this leads to this sort of idea that okay, uh, how does this happen somehow through some, some magic, the mind. Creates, <laughs> creates a body or, or consciousness. Consciousness creates a mind and body out of nothing. Um, in a sense, that's true, but it's not true in the sense that we're most likely to, to think it is. So let me just run through the eight, and then that's exactly the point I wanted to come back to, is to talk about the relationship between consciousness and uh, mind and body. And, and that mm-hmm. will help to clarify this. But this is a description of a psychological process. And the, uh, all, of, all of the Buddha's teachings are from a particular viewpoint which could be described as, uh, as, as being a, a psychological perspective, could be described as being purely experiential, because that is actually his starting point, is let's get right <coughs> down to what is what is actually happening in nature experience. Also, in, in uh, Western philosophical terms, it could be described as being phenomenological. Mm. And that's an important thing about the view, because um, the first thing that we do is to distinguish between the ordinary view. There exists a universe of substantially self-existent and are relatively persistent objects that exist independently of my mind. <coughs> and I am, my, my body is one of those objects, so it is self-existently separate from all the rest of these objects. And, uh, of course, my body is the basis, the home, the the, the uh, uh, abode in which my mind dwells and I believe that this universe out there with all its objects exists independently of my mind you know I turn away and I think that that wall is still over there (laughs) 
all on its own, even though I can't see it anymore. You know, we, 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 we assume the forest is still there even when no one uh, is, is there. So there is an assumption that my mind and, and my consciousness have a completely separate and independent existence from this universe of objects and that my body has a relative independence just as all of these other relatively self-existent bodies, objects, things have their own separate existence. That's the ordinary way of viewing things. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other view, the view that we distinguish that from is what do we really know? Mm-hmm. What do we, all that we really know is our experience. All that we really are is our cumulative experience. Actually, all that we really are is our consciousness in the moment and whatever our consciousness might deliver to us in terms of uh, memories that this, that this moment of consciousness is part of a stream that's been going on for a long time. But we don't have a direct experience even of a minute ago. We only have a, a, a sense that there was a minute ago and a yesterday and a last year. And we base that on, on memories that we access in the present moment. So all there is, is experience, the experience of the present. And, and all, that, uh, all that we can say with certainty is that it seems as though the experience of the present is part of an ongoing flow of experience. And all that there is in the present is some sensory information that the mind, based on a lot of stored data, interprets in a particular way and experiences in a particular way. So this is quite a different view, right? Quite a different way of looking at things. So we distinguish between that. When we're talking about Viticca Samapada, or dependent origination, we're not trying to describe a world of independent, separately existent objects occupied here in the middle by this separately existent conscious mind self. Okay. All right. So the sequence, once again, just to review it, so those of you that aren't familiar with it will make sure you've got it really clear. With consciousness... When, when there is consciousness, when consciousness exists, there is mind and body. Now, does this not agree with your experience? No. Okay. When consciousness exists, there's mind and body. And when there's mind and body, then uh, part of that body is uh, the, the sense basis. And we don't even need to make any assumptions about the nature uh, of the sense basis. In other words, the normal way of thinking would be that the sense organs are part of the self-existent physical body and that the sense objects are self-existent things out there that we see and hear and taste and so forth. But we don't need to make that assumption. There's just the sense basis. What we do know is that when we're conscious, uh, the experience we have is of, 
a mind and body. And the experience of mind and body, well, there's a mind as sense organ, and then there's bodily sense organs, and there's objects. And we have some combination of all of those things as a part of, uh, of our experience. These, these flow, and the idea is these are flowing one from the other. And of course, from, from that, of course, is we are consciously aware of different objects. That's the contact aspect. And the objects that we're aware of are either experienced in a mode of pleasant or unpleasant or, or neither. Right? And this is not this is not too difficult to grasp. So these are the, the five of these these eight that so let's go back and, and, and look at them a little more closely. Now, because like any formula, you know, like a mathematical formula, uh, right after you say A plus B squared plus, you know, then you got to go on and explain what B is and what A is and so forth. <laughs> the consciousness. The word for consciousness, this first word, vijnana, it uh, begins with V. And V implies duality, separateness. Okay, so it is referring to a specific kind of consciousness. It's a kind of consciousness that always has an object. And it has six different forms it can take. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, uh, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, uh, body consciousness, mind consciousness. In other words, it's a consciousness that has a visual object a, or one of the other kinds of objects. So, when consciousness exists, there is mind and body. And when mind and body exist, there's consciousness. These two come, come together. So let's explain. The actual words that I'm saying, mind and body, are namarupa. And actually, they are combined together. Nama means name, which is, uh, literally it means name, but by uh, use and implication it means all that is to do with the mind or mentality. And rupa means form. Rupa by itself means form. But when the Buddha combined them together, Namarupa, he said, when I say Namarupa, I mean the individual. And when I say the individual, I mean Namarupa. And, and other than Namarupa, there is, there is nothing to an individual but Namarupa, only Namarupa. And then he went on to explain that Namarupa consists of five different things. And these are uh, also known as the five aggregates of grasping or the five aggregates of clinging. So these five things are, well, rupa, of course, and the other four are, are all nama. Nama is feeling, that's the, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Well, okay, now we see why where consciousness is present, nama-rupa is present, where nama-rupa is present, consciousness is present, because consciousness is part of nama-rupa. The individual, what we're talking about here is the individual. This is what you are. This is what you really are, 
If you examine yourself, you consist of these five aggregates. So let's look and see if we find this to be true. Um, requires a little more explaining that there is a, a process of development in the use of the word rupa. Now, rupa means form, as in the shape that something has that you can feel with your hands. You know, I can feel the form of this cup. And I can see the form of this cup. And so um, it has, has been used to refer to all of those things that can be known through the five bodily senses. You know, and in one place uh, it explained, uh, when I say rupa, I mean uh, that which is uh, afflicted in a material way. So that which can be afflicted by cold, for example. Uh, so in a sense, rupa means everything. It means everything physical. But if we come back to the point that the only way that we know about the existence of anything physical is by means of these five senses. We have no other way of knowing anything about the physical except the five senses. And then if we if we take as our reference point this view, this experiential view, well, all we actually have is the sensations. We have we have we just have the sensations. We're conscious of the, 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 the things that we hear and that we see and so forth. And it's out of those sensations that those sensations are the only thing that we really have to, to hang our, our belief in this material universe on. Okay? So that's what rupa means, is our sensations. Then the nama. We are... Wait, when the, when the Buddha said, you are these five aggregates, you are that collection of sensations. And in addition to that, you are that collection of feelings. With every sensation, there arises some feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. It's, it's, it's logically impossible there won't be one of those three. And one of the important part of our, parts of our practice is to come to understand this by uh, being mindful of feelings, being mindful of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So, so anyway, you are, in addition to a collection of sensations, you are a collection of feelings. Likewise, you are a collection of mental formations. Mental formations, now this is a huge category of things. This means all your thoughts and ideas, your concepts, your beliefs, your emotions, basically everything to do with the mind that's not included by the other four components of Rupa, or of Nama. Now, the third of the four Nama components is perception. And what perception means Perception is what we experience when the mind takes sensation and identifies it, recognizes it. Right? So you hear a sound and you recognize that sound from being just a pure sound to being 
a voice or a door slamming or a car or whatever it is. This is happening. This this is true of all of your perceptions. A perception is when a sensation is identified on the basis of this massive collection of mental formations which you have built up over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And your perception may not just be of, oh, that's a small, noisy, four-legged animal of the uh, genus Canis. It may be, oh, what a noisy, yappy little dog that is. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So your perception your perception comes with a lot of baggage. Right? Mm-hmm. It always does. So we're a collection. You are your sensations, your feelings, your mental formations, and your perceptions, and of course the fifth component, the fourth of the Nama, is, is consciousness. Okay? So this is what you are, these five aggregates. Yes? Oh, it's the thing. It comes back to consciousness again. It kind of goes around. Yeah. Well, see, that's exactly why, you know, Buddha said where, where consciousness is present, there is mind and body, and where mind and body is present, there is consciousness, because consciousness is one of the one of the five components of Nama Rupa, one of one of the four Nama components. Hmm. So now this is this is this is a really important point, and it takes a little getting used to because we're not used to thinking of ourselves. Uh, is surely there must be more to me than this, and it takes some investigation to satisfy yourself that no matter how hard you look, this is this is what you are, and back to the view of being a sequence of experiences, in every experience, what is there? Like right now, there's a collection of sensations, and of course the perceptions you have based on those sensations, uh, and of course, where are those? how are those perceptions determined? Well, it's by all these mental formations that you've got. You know, that's how you recognize the things that you see and evaluate and discriminate and so forth. So right now, this experience you're having, there's a collection of sensations, a collection of perceptions, a bunch of mental formations, some feelings, some of these things will have a positive feeling, and some will have negative feeling, and some will have neutral feeling. And of course, there's an element of consciousness. And you may be more or less conscious of any of these different uh, sensations uh, moment to moment. As, as we go along here, but is this not a pretty good description of what you are and what presumably you have always been? Yeah? Can I, nowhere in this is mindful awareness, correct? That's, we're only talking about... Well, let's put this differently. How, how would we, if... if I am this aggregate, uh, if I am these five aggregates, if that's what makes me up, um, then how does mindful awareness fit into this? Okay, so if I am mindfully aware, how does that fit into it? Well, um, you see, one of the six kinds of uh, objects that can be taken as consciousness and be perceived uh, is uh, are the mental objects themselves, 
And so here I am as this aggregate, I can be conscious of and have a perception of my feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I can be conscious of and have a perception of some, some at least, uh, some few at least, of the mental formations that are involved in my present perceptions. And of course, I'm conscious of my perceptions. Most of the time, this is what we're mainly conscious of, is just our perceptions, right? We, you know, it's like with your eyes. You, although all your eyes can really detect is is color, uh, different colors and brighter and darker, um, when you open your eyes, you see recognizable objects. You see, right. you see people. Okay? And if you try really, really hard, you might, for a brief moment, be able to experience just, just shape and color form. But mm-hmm. almost immediately, you have a perception. And this is mostly where we're mostly conscious of perception. But we can be conscious of the sensations by themselves. Yeah. We can also be conscious of the mental formations by themselves as a specific kind of object. Yeah. Well, what is it that ties the aggregates together into the sense of still? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, they, they they tie it, it's not there, there's nothing outside of these aggregates that ties them together. You know, it's uh, this this is what you are and. The mental formations are probably, you know, uh, if you want to think in terms of what's providing the structure, it's the it's the mental formations. And uh, let's speak about these mental formations. You are conscious of some of them, and you're conscious of uh, some of them in different ways at different times. When you sit and think, you're conscious of thoughts and ideas and concepts. Uh, when you're having emotional experiences, your experience of you're, you're conscious of your emotions. You have memories. You know you're you're conscious of your memories. But if we examine ourselves, we'll find that the huge mass of our mental formations lies beneath the surface and is mostly unseen. You where, where does the unseen so did Buddhists have that idea? What's that? Sorry. The, the unseen realm, where is that? Where, where is it? Yeah, where is it? You mean physically? Well, in terms sense. of, if we, if we revert to, uh, if we revert to our normal way of uh, thinking of things, we'd say, well, uh, this would be the unconscious part of the mind and presumably it's all stored somehow in this three pounds of of neurons that are flashing and firing at each other. Is that the right way to look at it? There's nothing wrong with looking at it that way as long as you keep in mind that even the three pounds of neurons is a mental formation that is based on uh, that is derived second, third, fourth order from just simple sensation. Let's look at what happens, you know, when you're born. You know, and one way of looking at these links of dependent origination is is what happens when you're born. So, uh, maybe born is not quite the right point in time, but 
consciousness and a developing embryo, right? At some point, a developing embryo, uh, at least look, we, 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 most of us can't remember that experience, but from the point of view of, of observations and, and, and inference, at some point, consciousness seems to uh, be present in a developing embryo. And so when you're born, you're already born with mind, uh, we're already born with consciousness, mind, and body. Okay, so those are already present. But this mind doesn't have any information to go on. And uh, there's been wonderful studies done in the last 50 years of, you know, the development of, uh, of the mind and the brain. I think there's a, a lot more work to be done there, but it's really marvelous the things that have been revealed. But, you know, how uh, a, an infant's mind begins to create uh, a reality out of, you know, the infant really has no problem opening their eyes and experiencing only color, form, contrast, because, you know, it doesn't have any meaning other than that. There is, uh, within, you know, from this perspective, there's a structure of the brain that causes uh, all human infants to to organize the sensory data along similar lines. And so, you know, we, we develop... Uh, even a very young child has an image of the world that they've created in their mind that's functional for them. It's worth pointing out that a very young infant is experiencing pleasant and unpleasant and craving and is acting and and, and intentions and those intentions interesting thing about uh, uh, it's hard to imagine a newborn infant saying well I think I'll cry and then somebody will feed me or make me warm or change my diaper. It's just there is the, the there is the feeling of, of some kind of need and unpleasantness, and then the uh, intention to change that arises, and the brain's already programmed to engage the the breathing muscles and the vocal cords and to cause crying. The instinct's already present. So all that has to happen is for the infant's mind to generate the intention to to improve the situation. But anyway, you see what I'm talking about, though, is, you know, it, this is what happens, is that your, your, your mind, all, uh, your, your, your mind started out not knowing all this stuff and started creating mental formations to make sense of the sensory data and especially to plot a way, uh, to plot a path uh, through things so that, uh, you know, Avoid the bad and, and get more of the good. Would it be useful to try to cultivate a direct perception of color and form without you know, these concepts coming up? Uh, it, 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 it might. It's something that happens fairly spontaneously uh, often in... Uh, uh, in meditation on the breath, when a person's concentrating with a high level of mindful awareness, the sensations that they experience will uh, just d- become, there will be no conceptualization, they'll just experience them as pure sensation, you know, with no attached meaning, and that sort of happens spontaneously. And the nature, what's important about it, what makes it useful is that the nature of that experience is that it's constantly changing, it's just all there is is this 
constant flux changing so rapidly that the, the mind can't even grasp it. Mm-hmm. And what you, you'll experience that, and it will be you know as if as if the ground's falling off from under your feet, and your mind will actually leap back, and it's oh it'll it'll find a pattern in there and say oh that's the in breath and that's the out breath. Mm-hmm. And then you can go back into it. So you're saying, uh uh-huh, you experienced this. Well, when I was a kid, I used to have to go to church all the time when I was bored. And I learned how to make the priest's words just yeah. be sound. Just be sound. It wasn't right. easy, but I could And you can become quite aware. It was really interesting, because it was like I was yeah. hip enough to do that. <laughs> you can become quite aware doing that with words. or But this happens in meditation with sensation. But the important thing about it, if you recognize it, I mean, it could just be a fun game. But if you recognize what's happening, you see... This is all there is, is sensation. And the mind extracts from this constant flux of, 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 of continuously changing sensation patterns. And then it attaches meaning to the patterns. It was interesting to see how quick the mind wanted to put the meaning on. That's right. It was your interesting mind, to kind of like suspend it. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> but we all have experiences like that. I mean, you know, I, I know uh, it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you all that... You've been walking or driving at night, and all of a sudden, you can't figure out what on earth it is that you're looking at in front of you. You just feel your mind sort of rushing through all the files, trying to find something that matches this. And all of a sudden, there it is. Oh, it's the light from over there on the side of that tree, and then there's a guardrail, and oh, yeah, okay, it's all gone. Right. Or you'll hear a sound, you know, you'll hear a sound in the night, and it's like you know, your mind's just doesn't recognize it. It's just churning, 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 trying trying to find an identity to stick to it. So we... And this is what our minds just do. This is... Our, our mind creates a meaningful world so that it can navigate through experience. So this is mental formations. And most of them you're not aware of. I mean, they've been formed over a lifetime. Or perhaps, as it said, over many lifetimes. But... They're there, and they're, they are determining the nature of your perceptions in this present moment. You know, when we talk about perceptions, the relationship between sensation, perception, and mental formations, keep that in mind. That those mental formations, most of which you don't even know about, you know, are determining how you are perceiving things. And then, of course... You have you have an experience, and it's either pleasant or unpleasant, you know, and uh, that in turn makes a, 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 an imprint. The, this mass of mental formations is being modified instant by instant, constantly by each new experience. So it's it too is in a constant state of flux, and of course, what you do if if desire or anger or something like that arises and you feed energy into it and you, uh, and you develop an intention and you act out of it, well then you've made a really... you've added another significant chunk to those mental formations and that is going to have a profound effect on what happens, what, what you experience in the future, what perceptions arise. You know, so... Your experience, if you can can understand this and examine it deeply, you'll realize that your experience has way more to do with the stored mental formations in your mind mm-hmm. than it does with the sensations that get interpreted on the basis of those. Hmm. 
And so, in that sense, it's, you know, you can start to get a handle on the idea of what we mean when we say that your personal reality is created by your mind. Hmm. But isn't, like, making an intention sort of have all these implications, like, have all these understandings in it, that there's something that's making this intention, and that there's something out there, and that this, you do something, I mean, there's, like, all sorts of, like, assumptions in there that... Which assumptions? Well, you, like, if one intends to do something, like, you want to tend to pick up that cup, there's me, there's the cup, there's ability to move, there's all these assumptions in there. And they're all, like... Yes, yeah, there's all those assumptions, there's, there's the assumption that the cup exists and that you exist to start with, and mm. then... Then there's maybe assumption isn't the right word for the fact that you want what's in the cup. That's more. That's that's maybe more at the level of uh, less assumption and <laughs> more direct experience. But you know, there's the assumption you can reach out and pick it up. And if you ever reach out and and it doesn't turn out the way you expect, you're surprised and disappointed, right? right. You reach out and knock the cup over instead of picking it up. It's but there's memory and stuff, and there's memory that yes, the stuff in the cup tastes good. And that's right. Yeah. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. That's right. But, memory. Uh, rec- yeah. All the memories and everything else. So, yes? So, so, in some way, the purpose of this path of, of Buddhism would be to come to the realization uh, that, that we are just these five aggregates. And to a point where we just accept them and don't want anything else, don't crave for anything to be different than what is, what those five, that we are those five aggregates? Well, in terms of a, a, a final goal, the, the final goal isn't to accept that you're just the five aggregates. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, merely, that's merely an important point stage along the way. Um, and, and really, it, the important thing is to realize that there is not a permanent, abiding, separate self. There is these five, there are these five aggregates. And nowhere in those five aggregates is this separate permanent, abiding self. You know. And that's, that's an important step along the way. The point is to come to, uh, number one, to come to, to, uh, to wisdom, to understand how things actually are rather than how they appear to be. Or actually, we could say the point is to, to transcend suffering. Uh, because that's what the Buddha always said. That's all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. I don't teach anything else. Uh, I'm not interested in this philosophy stuff. <laughs> all I teach is suffering and the path to the end of suffering. But anyway, uh, the the end of suffering is achieved through the end of craving, and the end of craving is achieved through the uh, destruction of ignorance. Uh, and with the destruction of ignorance, uh, wisdom is born. Now this is an interesting thing here because ignorance is a, an abnet, absence of something. It's a negative. So with the elimination of the negative it implies the creation of the positive. So ignorance is overcome through the creation of wisdom and the wisdom is is right view and right understanding. Hmm. Seeing things how they really are. So you know, we could look right to the end and say, okay, we're, we're looking at transcending suffering, but 
we're looking at wisdom, and more comes out of the wisdom than than just the end of our personal suffering. Which certainly, from where we begin the path, that's the most important thing: is the end of our personal suffering. And to pretend otherwise is ridiculous because <laughs> that's the only reason we'd have to take up the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking that a different way to say it and I don't know if this makes sense would be to say that there's just all these perceptions and I guess I don't know, I don't know but that one this idea of you and me and whatever it's just like this convenient kind of fiction and if you get into trouble if you don't recognize that it's a convenient fiction. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's another way of saying it. Yeah. So, uh, our, our, our suffering, so much of our suffering, is the result of uh, believing things that aren't true. And if you, if you overcome the, uh, uh, that delusion, then the suffering goes away. Hmm. And that's why it's called awakening. You know, I, you know you're having a bad dream, you wake up. And all of a sudden, hey, it's okay. Yes, Pam, you wanted to... Well, it seems to me that built into the human mechanism on all these levels is, is, a, is, a, is a great irony and, and liability. Mm-hmm. And that um, when you look at the world situation, um, we, are, we tend, if I'm understanding you correctly, and I... And I that, that we're actual what we what we see what we're perceiving in, in the world is and how we're responding to it is more a function of the mental formations mm-hmm. that we have about things mm-hmm. rather than seeing things right here right now because I, I think of the 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 in Ireland you know mm-hmm. that that you know, went on for centuries. Uh, in the Middle East, mm-hmm. the Palestinians and the Israelis, you look mm-hmm. at any of these great conflicts in our world, or even our loved ones, or mm-hmm. in our families, you know, even on, 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 the, on all these levels, it seems like we are seeing through the blinders of our mental formations. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. Absolutely. And if you look at pick any day of your life and look, and you'll find most of the upsetting, unhappy events that have happened in any day of your life are because of your mental formations and how they've conditioned the way you look at it. And you can look at those same things. Somebody else could could uh, have the same experience and respond totally differently. Or you, with a slight shift in attitude, could have a totally different result. I'll point out another thing, too, though. This is not just an individual thing. It's a collective thing. We were talking about the development of the mental formations in a child. At a certain point, the child stops creating the mental formations all on his own and now has learned to understand language and uh, and then learns to read, goes to school, and everything else. So uh, the, the mass of mental formations that we have... Uh, we, we could, what, what we as modern people, educated human beings uh, capable of language and communication, could never have possibly generated this particular view world 
on our own, a worldview on our own. It's a cumulative thing. And so that means that all of the things in our cumulative worldview that are faulty and unhealthy and unwholesome, you know, uh, they keep getting passed along and distributed and <laughs> reinforced and, you know. So it's more, than, it's more than just an individual thing. But it basically it comes down to, yeah, we got all these mental formations and it's through the lens of these pre-existing mental formations that we perceive uh, whatever it is that uh, arises in, in consciousness. And uh, that gives us that gives us a very some very important tools to work with, some very important clues to what's happening and why it's happening, and most especially how it can be changed. It, as a matter of fact, it can be changed quite significantly, quite readily, and. Uh, it's really quite amazing that it can be changed so easily, considering that whatever kind of person that you are right now today, it took you at least this lifetime to accumulate you know, that particular view of the world and all of the relationships and the delicate, complicated interactions between how you see different things that produce a specific set of perceptions that you have. And... So you go through your life, you have a perception of self and you uh, have highs and lows during your days whenever that perception of self gets gratified and you have lows when it's, uh, when it's uh, <coughs> assaulted or, or insulted or something else like that. You have all these perceptions of things as good and bad and you carry out judgments and you react with, with uh, anger, annoyance or, or happiness, joy according to your, your perceptions. Um, you go through the day experiencing a lot of suffering because of, out of your ignorance uh, you react to one thing after another with uh, desire or aversion. And from, as a result of the desire and aversion there's, uh, you, you, you reject things as they are and you experience dissatisfaction and you do things and things bring consequences. But you can change that. You can begin to uproot that and in a very short time see a remarkable difference. And this is what we were talking about before I left, and, and one of the things I want to get back to talking about in these sessions is that that you can you can change the way you you can reprogram your mind. You can change the predominant uh, components of these mental formations in terms of how you react. You can cease to react with impatience, annoyance, irritation. Anger, hatred, uh, you can eliminate those. And, that's, and you can do it in a surprisingly quick time if you, if you work on it deliberately and, and, and diligently. And hopefully some of you, since, you know, since we talked about this before I went away, have already discovered what a big difference it can make in your life in a short period of time. It's not like it's years to do. Same thing, desire. To the degree to which you're... you're uh, driven by desire, you're compulsively expending time and energy going this way and that way, and always trying to to uh, obtain some kind of uh, sensual or psychological gratification. You can overcome that. You can liberate yourself from that relatively quickly by 
just being aware of it, just mindful awareness of of the causes, the actions, and the consequences, and the rest takes care of itself. See, now this is the way these mental formations work. This mind of ours is incredibly powerful. Hmm. That if you can see that every time you get angry, it doesn't feel good. It makes you unhappy, and it brings other consequences that make you unhappy in the future, and it makes other people unhappy. All you have to do is see that. You don't have to analyze it. You don't have to judge it. You don't have to say, you know, you don't have to say, well, I'm going to stop doing this. You know, I mean, all you have to do is see what's happening. It's like, you know, you only have to hit yourself, you know, on, on the hand with a rock so many times before those built-in natural mechanisms say, you know, it's probably not a good thing to continue doing. <laughs> so that's the power of mindfulness, and it can change things quickly. Yes. I have to excuse myself and pick my mother up from the airport. Oh, Thank that's you. very good. I'm probably going to have to set everyone else free very soon, too. So, yes? So I was thinking that... I guess it's just the power of mindfulness that keeps you from simply creating new mental formations of yourself as being calm and peaceful. Or, or, you know what I mean? There's that thing where you can do that too and that's not really changing. You know, that's just creating this other image. <laughs> so, that's true. Yeah. And so I guess it's mindfulness that lets you recognize like, oops, <laughs> when you're doing that or, or keep you grounded. Yep. Basically, mindful awareness is just knowing what's happening in, in the present. Let's go back to dependent origination, though. I mean, that was the first five. Where there's consciousness, there's mind and body. Where there's mind and body, there's the sense bases. Where there's sense bases, there's contact. Where there's contact, there's feeling. And then comes the biggie, where there's feeling, there's craving. This is the this is the programming that, as an infant, we come into the world with, and it's very important. You know, that's how we survive. That's how all the other organisms on the share of the planet will survive as well. That where there is feeling, there there is craving. And, you know, our bodies are programmed that the things that produce pleasant, uh, pleasure and pain for us are, you know, those are, are those direct our behaviors in particular ways that help us survive. So, I mean, it's a natural thing. But it's, it's that deep of a program. We, we come into existence uh, with craving. And, of course, it gets reinforced constantly over and over again. So, when there's feeling, there's craving. When there's craving, you see, why, why does your mind bother creating this image of the world, this, this model of the world, this idea of the world? Why does your mind bother doing that? Why not just... Eh, Sensations or sensations. Well, it's because of the craving. It's and this is what grasping means. Grasping or clinging, really terrible. The only thing that's good about the words grasping and clinging is they do describe the absolute crudest form of that, which is something comes along and it feels good and, and it's like there is that... Ah, right? It tastes good, I want some more. There is that grasping, or it feels good, I'm not letting go of it. I, but other than that, it totally fails to explain what upadana means. Upadana is that activity of the mind that your mind is also programmed to do, which is to make sense of the world in a way that 
allows you to satisfy your craving. Right. Like, couldn't you just, I mean, I think you could make this argument that that's the purpose of emotions is to satisfy these bodily absolutely, needs. Absolutely, you've like got the it. The purpose that's, of, like, rationality is to satisfy these bodily absolutely, needs. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And if we had only emotions, we'd be in terrible shape. We wouldn't <laughs> stand a chance. But fortunately, we have, in addition to emotions, we have rationality. Well, if we had only emotions, we'd be like animals, and so we wouldn't be building nuclear bombs anyway. Yes, we, uh, <laughs> yes. animals, animals, uh, uh, more especially animals. simple animals, you observe their behavior, and they have uh, instinct-based emotional reactions, and they serve, as long as they're in the environment that they evolved, mm-hmm. with the kind of circumstances that they evolved to, then these instinct-based emotional reactions serve them well. They survive, they reproduce, and, you know, they, they, they do their thing and hmm. they pass away and life goes on. Birth, old age, and death over and over again. That's what emotions get you. A question is not really related to something I shouldn't ask, but it's about consciousness. I think that consciousness might arise from the need to learn things. Well, That's where it comes from because it enables you to learn things. Like, you're totally instinctive, you don't necessarily need to have consciousness. Well, might, I, I, I don't think uh, in, it's time to let everybody go home, so I can't diverge Sorry. into a discussion of the nature of, of consciousness and where it arises, but that, that would be, a, that would be a, an interesting discussion for another evening. But anyway, as far as dependent origination goes, it, this is the gra- out of the craving. You know, and the craving is just that, that raw reaction of the mind, the desire and the aversion. And that's what it is. But it's as a result of that. When that's present, then your mind goes to work and it organizes everything and says, well, okay, I'm me and I'm like this and that thing that I want is there and it's like that and these are the other things that are like the way they are and they're in my way. And so these are the things that I can do to get them out of my, you know, right? that's, that's grasping. That is grasping. Your mind makes all of these mental formations become reality. And then you become, and then it's, I am this being that wants this thing, and therefore I'm going to do this, and that's becoming, which is karmic action. So you see, we said in the past, through ignorance, there were karmic formations. What we're really talking about, the, the ignorance, when, when, as long as there's ignorance, feeling will be followed by craving. As long as there's ignorance, feeling will be followed by craving. Craving will be followed by grasping, and grasping will be followed by becoming, and, and then we mm-hmm. perpetuate the cycle. This is the, the, the thing that the Buddha realized on the night of his awakening, and then subsequently taught, is this is where the link can be broken. Through, through the destruction of ignorance, the ground is cut out from beneath cra- craving. And when there is no craving, there is no uh, grasping and there's, there's no becoming. And so all this other stuff is about understanding uh, how to overcome craving. And as we were talking about last time, that this craving, this craving is based in the, in the idea 
created by the mind. It's just one mental formation of the self. Because craving is only in relation to a self. Desire and aversion have no logic unless you create a boundary and inside is self and outside is not self. Now, once you've done that, then craving has a logic to it that this self here can experience pleasure or pain depending upon the manipulation of the not-self out there. And then that leads to everything else. So, I think that's where we have to leave it for tonight. But we got you through dependent origination. Everybody think they'll remember the 12 links of dependent origination? <laughs> what happens if we get every blood count? Right? I said, are you giving us a test? Yeah, I'll give you a test. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, life will keep giving you a test. <laughs> yeah. right. When you wake up tomorrow, there will be consciousness, and where there's consciousness, there will be mind and body and the sense spaces, and there will be contact, and there will be feeling. And then if you pay attention, there will be desire and aversion. <laughs> you can see the whole thing happening. It's, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's a formula. So apply the formula. The more you apply the formula, the more insight it will give you. But anyway, uh, as much as I'd love to go on for another hour or so, I know a lot of you came here from work and didn't have anything to eat yet and so forth. So thank you very much, and I love you, and until next week.